service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Jeff Buckley are insane. He was just 30 years old when he disappeared. Six days later, his body was found floating in the water near Beale Street in Memphis. He released only one studio album in his lifetime, yet he's achieved near-icon status. His father, Tim Buckley, a singer-songwriter of his own, also died tragically and at the age of 28. But Jeff Buckley never knew his father. Jeff wanted to create his own legacy. So that's what he did. And in doing so, Jeff Buckley made great music. He made one of the greatest debut records of all time. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Snips and Snails and Puppy Dog Tales, MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Mbop by Hanson. And why would I play you that specific slice of flaxen-haired brotherly cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on May 29th, 1997. And that was the day that Jeff Buckley waded into a river in Memphis and never returned safely to shore. On this episode, Floaters, Beale Street, a great debut, two tragic deaths, and Jeff Buckley. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Land. 
Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan was dreaming of music. The sound of hands clapping in rhythm, tabla, harmonium, Kuvali singers entering a trance-like state, pure ecstasy, their throats stretching and vibrating like rubber bands. Music was constant. Music was endless. Music didn't stop when you fell asleep. But Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan wasn't just dreaming of music. He was dreaming of his father, the great Kuvali singer. Nusrat's father never wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. But things change. 10 days earlier, Nusrat's father had died. And now he was here, in Nusrat's dream. So real, as real as the music that pulsed throughout Pakistan. He had one request. He asked his son to sing. Father, Nusrat replied, I cannot sing. You must try, his father said. And then he put his hand on Nusrat's throat. Nusrat felt a tremor. It percolated there, just beneath the skin of his neck. He felt something bubble up from his gut. It coursed through the blood in his veins. His father's warm hand guided the vibration through Nusrat's entire body. Nusrat opened his mouth. And then he shot up in bed, his eyes wide open, his dream state a distant memory, and he was doing something he'd never done before. He was singing. Over 30 years later, on May 29, 1997, Jeff Buckley was singing as he waded into the Wolf River in Memphis, Tennessee. He was wearing black jeans, black boots, and a t-shirt with the word Altamont written on it. A nod to the infamous Rolling Stones concert from three decades prior. But he wasn't singing a Rolling Stones song as he waded in deeper. He wasn't singing a song by Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan either. Even though Nusrat was it for Jeff Buckley, Nusrat was his guy, his Elvis. Nusrat was always in Jeff's voice, whether he was screaming like a heavy metal banshee, cooing like, as he once described himself, a chanteuse with a penis, or scatting like a jazz singer venturing in the slipstream. Right now, by the light of the blue moon hanging in the Memphis sky, Jeff was singing a song by his other idol, Robert Plant, specifically Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. From the shore, Keith Fody called out to Jeff, who is now knee-deep. What are you doing, man? Keith, the musician and hairstylist, made the trek from Jeff's adopted home, New York City, with Jeff's tour manager, all the way to Memphis, where Jeff was busy recording his second album. Now he found himself here, down by the water, after he and Jeff drove around town for what seemed like an hour in search of Jeff's rented rehearsal space to go bash on some instruments. They had time to kill. Jeff's band members weren't due back in town till later that night. But their search for the studio turned into a boondoggle. Jeff and Keyes didn't know Memphis all that well. This was the 90s. There were no smartphones, no standard issue GPS in the van. Navigation was analog, and that means it was a bitch. Fuck it. They'd find the rehearsal space later. Jeff had a better idea. A spur-of-the-moment idea. Those were the best kind. Let's go down to the river, he told Keith. Keith brought his guitar and a boombox from the van. Jeff, of course, had something else in mind. Now he was swimming out farther into the wolf, while Keith yelled at him to come back to shore. It made no difference, because no one told Jeff Buckley what to do. He did his own thing, followed his own muse. His label, Columbia Records, legally couldn't tell him what to do. 
The contract Jeff signed with Columbia back in 1992 gave him complete control of his music. It also gave him space and time to develop. But nearly three years had passed since the release of his debut album, Grace. It was obvious that Jeff had too much space and too much time. With no real deadline, he procrastinated. He couldn't get the new songs right. He couldn't get the sound right. Tom Verlaine tried. Jeff hired the legendary television guitarist to produce. But the new songs weren't finished. Verlaine wasn't a mind reader. They moved the sessions from New York to Memphis in hopes that a change of scenery would lead to inspiration. It only led to Verlaine's patience running out. Same for the money. Verlaine went back to New York. Jeff stayed in Memphis. He played unassuming solo gigs at a small place called Barristers as if he wasn't a major artist on Columbia Records, as if he was starting all over again. Who knew what would happen next? Maybe he'd buy the small house in Memphis that he was staying in. Maybe he'd get married. Maybe get a job working with butterflies at the Memphis Zoo, which, no shit, is something he actually applied to do. Jeff Buckley was spontaneous. He was passionate about moments in life and about opportunities that needed seizing. He made impulsive decisions, like wading out into a river in Memphis at nine o'clock in the evening, fully closed. He inherited that trait from his father, just like his five and a half octave vocal range. But Jeff Buckley didn't talk about his father. Tim Buckley wasn't even a memory. He was a dream, just like his songs. All songs were dreams. Some dreams could be songs. Music was everywhere. It was endless. Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan knew this, and Jeff Buckley knew it too. People were divine and eternal. People were here even if they were gone. That last one rang all too true every time someone wanted to talk to Jeff about his dad. Tim Buckley was dead, but his memory wouldn't leave Jeff Buckley alone. Tim was one of the so-called New Dillons of the 1970s, which was a ridiculous albatross the press slung over any decent singer-songwriter for like a decade. But Jeff Buckley didn't want the albatross of his father on his shoulders. Tim wasn't even there when Jeff was born. Tim was barely there at all. In 1975, when Jeff was eight years old, he spent a few days with his dad. The only days they ever spent together. Just a few months after that, Tim Buckley, ever impulsive and impetuous, was dead from a heroin overdose. And although Tim's obituary made no mention of Jeff's existence, Jeff still had his father's legacy to contend with privately. My blood is cursed, he told his girlfriend. He knew he'd wind up like his father, so he was surprised when he turned 28 the age at which Tim Buckley died, and Jeff still found himself alive. And then he even outlived his father. And now, he was 30 years old. But he still couldn't shake that feeling. It never went away. You know, he confided to his girlfriend, I'm gonna die young. And maybe the Wolf River would get him out of his own head. Aqua therapy or carpe diem therapy or some shit. Jeff was still doing his best Robert Plant impersonation while swimming the backstroke heading farther away from shore. Keith Fody tried to get his attention. Get out of the fucking water! Jeff was about 100 feet from the shore now. He couldn't see many stars up in the Memphis sky, but he knew they were there all the same. Keith kept yelling. Jeff, man, there's a boat coming! Locals used to call this part of the river the chute because it carries the flow of the wolf right into its convergence with the mighty Mississippi River. On the opposite side of the shore where Keith Fody stood, 
across the Wolf River was a naturally formed sandbar called Mud Island. And it was at the tip of Mud Island that the wolf met the Mississippi in whirlpooling eddies that were a lot stronger than they appeared. Jeff turned around to see that Keith was right. There was a tugboat heading straight in his direction. Jeff didn't have much time to react. Instead of heading back towards the shore, he began to swim toward Mud Island, or so it seemed from Keith's perspective. Jeff moved just in time, safely out of harm's way, and the tugboat sailed on by. But then, in the near distance, another boat appeared. This one was even bigger. Once again, it was headed straight for Jeff, and Jeff kept swimming, managing to get himself clear from the approaching vessel. Two close calls in a matter of minutes. As the bigger boat passed, however, it kicked up a much bigger wake, and the waves swelled all the way to the shore where Keith Foti stood. He picked up his boombox so that it wouldn't get soaked by the water. He put it down safely away from the shoreline and then turned back around to face the river. He looked out. Jeff Buckley was gone. Keith Foti saw nothing but water rising and falling, like the chest of a deep sleeper, like it had all been a dream. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacovas cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tacovis. If you can, stop by your local Tacovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacova stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. 
Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Gunshots rang out from the back of the reggae club. They overpowered the sound of ska music coming from the stage. They snapped like pop balloons, loud as fuck. The crowd panicked and the band stopped playing. More shots rang out. Jeff Buckley clung to his guitar and looked for a place to take shelter. Fuck, is it really worth this? Late night gunshots were nothing new to a guy living in a shitty apartment on Hawthorne Avenue, directly across from Hollywood High. Jeff heard the LA gangs fire off rounds in the football field from his bedroom. But to have it happen here, inside, while he was working, where innocent bystanders were like fish in a barrel, that was fucked up. LA was fucked up. And if random gunfire didn't get you, the Sunset Strip eventually would. As the 1980s came to a close, the Strip was oversaturated. Too many bands, too many girls, 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 and it wasn't about talent anymore. It was all about money. Money talked and no money having talent fucking walked. You want to play the strip? You pay to play the strip. You want to get on stage? Fuck your demo tape. You need a wallet as thick as the bulge in Tommy Lee's pants. You got cash and you're in. And you better fucking look the part too. Again, see Tommy Lee's bulge for details. The strip was leather and hairspray and stilettos and cocaine. It was Motley Crue and G&R. It was a jungle, baby. And Jeff Buckley, barely into his 20s and a little over an hour north from where he grew up in Anaheim, was welcomed into that jungle like so many other musicians before and after him. Nobody fucking cared. He had a vocational certificate from a local music school called the Musicians Institute, which in theory made him feel like Al Di Miola or John McLaughlin or insert your favorite esoteric jazz fusion guitarist here, but in practice, it was just another piece of paper. Everyone chasing a dream in LA had a piece of paper. Paper meant shit. Oh, you went to school? Good student? Fuck you. Take a number, get in line. Now, listen, this Jeff Buckley, the one I'm talking about, circa 1990, is not the same one you're currently envisioning. Not the guy with the white V-neck t-shirt and the unbuttoned flannel and the Fender Telecaster slung halfway down his body. Not the sublime vocalist with crazy range and acrobatic flair who covered songs by some of the greatest artists of all time and made them his own. This is Prague Jeff Buckley. Hesher Jeff Buckley, the guy who worshiped at the altar of Genesis, Yes, and Rush, the guy who eked it out as a journeyman in metal pop and ska bands with names like Group Therapy. Sometimes he didn't even go by Jeff Buckley. Sometimes he was Scott Moorhead, Scott being his middle name, the one he was called as a child, 
and Moorhead being the last name of the stepfather who raised him in his biological father's absence. The same stepfather who introduced him to all those staples of classic rock like Grand Funk Railroad, Chicago, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and of course, Led fucking Zeppelin. Sometimes he wasn't even Jeff or Scott. During his tenure in the AKB band, he was Scalp Cutta, that's C-U-T-T-A, a nickname he earned due to the razor sharp reggae riffs he chopped on his electric guitar. If that sounds a little ridiculous, well, it is. But so was Los Angeles. In Jeff Buckley's eyes, LA had become a creative and inspirational wasteland long before he got there. And if he hung around too much longer, he'd rot from the inside out. Right now though, at this little reggae club, Jeff Buckley was simply trying to not get shot. He kept himself safe behind the stage, far away from wherever the commotion was happening. People were still screaming and clamoring for the exits. Whoever had pulled the trigger was either still inside or maybe they bounced, it was hard to tell, but it was easy to feel that sinking feeling and hear that voice in the back of your head. It's no good here, it's time to move on. It's difficult to know for sure if the shooting at the AKB band gig was the thing that finally convinced Jeff Buckley to leave LA. Maybe it was just another of his impulsive decisions. But in early 1990, he packed what few things he had and moved to New York City. He worked the guitar for higher angles some more. He auditioned for an eclectic range of groups. He didn't really fit in with anyone. Nothing was clicking. When Jeff's Harlem roommate played him some Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan cassettes though, something did click and it clicked hard. Jeff locked in. The trance-like state of the music, it took him somewhere else, somewhere outside his own body. Listening to that shit was a physical experience and he listened to it all the time. I felt a rush of adrenaline in my chest, he later said, like I was on the edge of a cliff wondering when I would jump and how well the ocean would catch me. Van Morrison's Astro Weeks was next. It had the same effect. It was cliff jumping music, equally risky and rewarding. It awakened something deep inside of him in a way only music can. Music is primal. It taps deep into your psyche. It reminds you of smells and tastes, of memories that may or may not even be real. And if you give yourself over to the music, it can change you. It takes you on a journey where the you you once knew dies and the new you is born. The music transformed Jeff from the inside out. He walked him to the edge and took his breath away. Nusrat and Van held his hand and led him there. Robert too, both Roberts actually, Plant and Johnson. They all took him to that place where jagged cliffs slice into the horizon, where the wind blows up from an abyss below and carries with it not just those smells and tastes and memories that live inside of you, but a song. The wind smacked him in the face. The song smothered him. There were hands on Jeff's throat. Sing, the hands told him. They were in his father's hands, not Tim. Fuck that guy. Which is precisely what Jeff first said when Herb Cohen called. Fuck that guy. Herb Cohen was Tim Buckley's former manager, and he wanted to help Jeff's budding career. Jeff suspected Cohen just wanted him to carry his father's torch, but Jeff didn't carry shit. Look, Jeff Buckley didn't hate his father all the time, but when it came to his own career and his worth as an artist in his own right, well, that was one of those times. So fuck that guy. 
That was also his initial response when the producers behind Greetings from Tim Buckley, a tribute concert held at St. Anne's in Brooklyn Heights, approached him to perform some of his father's songs after they discovered that not only did Tim Buckley have a son, but that he was living right under their noses in New York. Jeff knew he had to swallow his pride. These were opportunities. Opportunities that needed seizing. With Cohen's help, he made a demo tape. A tape for him. For Jeff. Not for anyone else. That was all it was. A tape. And with the greetings from Tim Buckley concert, he convinced himself that he was simply saying goodbye to the father he never knew. But as the buzz grew around his New York debut, Jeff remained resolute and wanted to distance himself from being known solely as Tim Buckley's kid. I'd really rather that people not think about me as a face or a name or a body, he said, and just come and listen. Plus, he had his own journey to make, and he had shit to do. There was a cliff to walk to, an abyss to marvel at, and somewhere down there, way down below, an ocean to jump into. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. At Chenet, a little cafe in the East Village, the coffee was strong and the Rolling Rock was cheap. Chenet was geographically and ideologically far from LA. Jeff Buckley didn't pay to play. The audience didn't pay to watch. In LA, you walk into a place with nothing but a white telecaster you borrow from a friend and a demo tape, and you get laughed right out the fucking door. But not here. Chenet's Irish expat owner didn't even listen to Jeff's tape. Just set your shit up against the back wall and give him hell, kid. Monday nights were best. There was no pressure on Mondays. No expectations. Monday was, who the fuck is this guy night? It was, no, I am not the son of a somewhat famous songwriter from the 70s night. Starting in the spring of 1992, on every Monday night, Jeff Buckley cast aside the weight of Tim Buckley and walked to that cliff. He felt the wind kick up. He felt the hands touch his throat. He could do anything. He could be anyone. His hands started to hammer out a rhythm on his reverb-soaked telly. Edith Piaf? Oui, oui, Jeff could do Edith. Jeff could do Edith très bien. He picked up speed and volume on his telly. He vamped on one note, then an entire chord. How about some Zeppelin? He let his voice spiral upwards into another register, like it had grown wings. It morphed easily into Robert Plant and then Nusra and then Van and then it dropped the O and the N and added an E and a Y and he was Morrissey and then suddenly back to Plant again. His right hand kept scraping against the telly strings, the reverb bouncing like a springboard. Old scalp cutter rides again. And then with a dramatic chop of his right hand, he stopped strumming. But the music was endless. It didn't stop. He was now stomping his foot on the floor accented the rhythm by clapping his hands together. He started singing again, this time Nina Simone, this time with nothing accompanying him but the rhythms of his own body. At Chenet, Jeff Buckley was, as author Daphne Brooks put it, Spotify before Spotify. Which reminds me, let's all agree there should be a moratorium on performing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah because Jeff Buckley recorded the definitive version, a version that has not only been marked for preservation by the Library of Congress, but, as Jeff himself explained, was meant not as some sad-ass tearjerker to be played during some heartbreaking scene in a stupid movie, but an ode to, you know, the hallelujah of an orgasm. But I digress. At Chenet, Jeff didn't just play covers. He workshopped his own songs. Eternal Life, Mojo Pin, Lover, You Should Have Come Over, Words spread fast. This guy at Chenet, he sounds like everyone and no one. He's an anomaly, 
a true original, and dig it, you can watch them evolve on stage every week at this tiny coffee shop in St. Mark's Place. The audiences got bigger. Soon, everybody there wanted them, including reps from all of the major labels. And by the autumn of 1992, Jeff was signed to Columbia Records. Almost two years later, in August of 1994, he released his debut LP, Grace. It was the height of grunge rock, just months after the death of Kurt Cobain. But it sounded like neither grunge nor Kurt. It sounded like nothing else out there. It defied categorization. Some songs were cerebral and complex, straight up art rock. Others were slick pop confections, but whether it was that untouchable cover of Hallelujah or original songs that ran the gamut from pissed off punk to Eastern influence meditation, the constant was Jeff's voice. It was a voice that could do anything, anything, but find a mass audience, it seemed. It took nine months before Grace even cracked the Billboard Top 200. But just like Jeff's contract, the record had time and space to find that audience. Columbia worked on finding Jeff Buckley's audience without dragging Tim Buckley into it. They never mentioned Jeff's father once in their PR blitz. Jeff even had a rider on his tour contract that restricted venues from using Tim's name in their advertisements. And if they did, he could legally refuse to perform. But the more Jeff gave the memory of his father the silent treatment, the more it was all anyone wanted to talk about. Jesus Christ, kid, you look just like him. You sound like him too. Your song, Dream Brother, is that a direct response to Tim's song, Dream Letter? Did you ever play his songs? Why not? Why don't you play one of his songs for us right now, tonight? On tour in Denver, the constant barrage of requests finally got to him. Against his better judgment, Jeff rambled his way through one of his dad's old songs. Are you satisfied now? He asked the crowd when he was finished. Are you really? Now shut the fuck up for the rest of the night. Loving kisses from the living one, Jeff Buckley. The statey told him to get out of the car. He didn't realize that he pulled over Jeff Buckley. He didn't know who Jeff Buckley was. This was New Jersey, after all. Are you Frank Sinatra? No? Then get the fuck out of the fucking car. Jeff did as he was told. In the cop's eyes, he was just another slacker with long hair, a goodwill wardrobe, and a sorry excuse. And when it came to excuses, he could say whatever he wanted. It didn't matter. The cops saw him take a swig from the beer bottle as the car he was riding in blew past where the police cruiser sat. Saw him with his own two eyes. And where there was smoke, there was always fire. The cop told him to empty his pockets. Jeff did. The plastic bag was tiny. Just enough weed for one joint. Just enough to put him in cuffs and head down to the station. At the station, however, all it took were a few words from Jeff's friend for the police to change their tune. Hey man, you want me to call your manager? Hold up. His manager? Who was this kid? A recording artist? A star? Hang on, loosen those cuffs a little bit. What do you need, kid? Something to drink? Something to eat? Maybe we've been a little too hard on you. Jesus Christ. This shit was even worse than getting arrested. The idea that Jeff's level of fame, which all things considered was moderate at best, meant that he'd get treated differently than the next guy. It was tough enough navigating whatever the hell his life was, his skin, his flesh, his bones, but to navigate being famous on top of all of that was a total mindfuck. So were the rumors that were set in motion when word of Jeff's brush with New Jersey's finest hit the press. Rumors that it wasn't weed in Jeff's pocket, but heroin. It was the same shit he had to read about when Courtney Love invited him to catch a production of Hamlet on Broadway. 
Kurt had been dead a little over a year. Jeff gladly accepted. They were just friends. The tabloid said otherwise. They must be lovers, at least drug buddies. Jeff was hanging out with Courtney, thus Jeff must be another Kurt Cobain, another Tim Buckley, another genius turned addict on his road to tragedy, another story that sold their fucking papers. And while it's true, based on the accounts of his bandmates and other musicians, that Jeff dabbled very occasionally in snorting heroin, he was no junkie. He had plenty of other things to worry about. There was that second album, the one he couldn't finish. Some days, couldn't even start it. And there was that pretty boy bullshit from the last goodbye video gaining traction on MTV. He wasn't pretty, he wasn't soft. He wanted the next record to rock hard. And he was nobody's puppet. To really drive that last point home, he turned down the gap when they asked him to model their clothing. He turned down Saturday Night Live. And he turned down David Letterman too. Columbia though was getting impatient. Not only was Jeff rejecting all of his media attention, he was way past deadline and financially in the hole. Grace had cost the label $2.2 million between recording fees, tour support, and promotional expenses. And of that, $1.8 million was recoupable, meaning that 100% of Jeff's royalties were going directly to pay back that deficit. There would be more sales and thus more royalties if only he'd say yes to the goddamn gap. But Jeff Buckley didn't do things the way that someone else wanted. He did what he wanted, even when the signs told him not to. It wasn't an ocean, and you didn't have to jump off a cliff to dive into it. But the Wolf River called out to Jeff Buckley all the same. There was something about the water on this night, in this moment. It was impossible to explain, so he didn't try to. Just went in. First, he waded into the water, and before long, he was swimming. He ignored his friend shouting at him, just like he ignored the no swimming signs back on the shore. He sang Zeppelin and heard his voice float into the sky. The sky was a landfill of dreams and songs, and just like dreams and just like songs, the sky was endless. This moment felt like a dream, the kind of dream you could smell, the kind of dream you could taste. Before long, just like Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, when he dreamt of his father coming to him, touching his throat, telling him to sing, Jeff felt something touch his own throat, but it wasn't someone's hands and no one was telling him to do anything. It was a rush of water kicked up by a boat's wake, and it wanted more than his throat. It wanted to swallow him whole. <laughs> Keith Fody was running. He stopped when at last he found a payphone. Like many things in Memphis, it wasn't all that far from a statue of Elvis. He grabbed the receiver and dialed 911, told the operator on the other end of the line that his friend had disappeared. Jeff Buckley was somewhere in the Wolf River. It was just about 9.30 p.m. Memphis PD sent helicopters. They launched boats, and they combed the shoreline. They lit up the pitch black wolf like a Christmas tree. Jeff's band, meanwhile, went back to the small house he was renting. Up in the attic, they found skull candles and notebooks full of Jeff's handwriting. One particular entry was all about, quote, transition and reincarnation and becoming molecules and rain, unquote. 
The next day, Memphis was dry. The clouds were wispy, far away, but so close, so real. The clouds moved quickly against a backdrop of deep blue, blown from one spot in the sky to the next. It was hard not to look up at that sky and sense that Jeff Buckley, too, had moved on. Which isn't the same as saying he was gone. People, like music, like dreams, are divine and eternal. People are here even if you can no longer see them with the naked eye. They're in the mind's eye, in the mind's ear. And their songs drift along with the clouds in the sky, and their melodies tumble down to earth in between raindrops. Their voices echo from the river's edge. And each day, those voices rise with the sun. On June 4th, 1997, six days after Jeff Buckley disappeared, just hours after his band members and friends left Memphis, a passenger on board the American Queen Riverboat spotted his body stuck in an eddy of branches near Mud Island, where the Wolf River meets the Mississippi. There were no drugs in his system, and just enough alcohol for one glass of beer or wine. The official cause of death was accidental drowning. Unlike Jeff Buckley's short life, the music he left behind is endless. It is everywhere. It can take you on a journey and change you. It awakens something deep inside you. It is cliff-jumping music. Listening to it now remains a pathway to a trance-like state. A state of ecstasy. A state of eternal life. A state of grace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock-a-rolla.